took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. We took a little bacon and we took a little beans and we caught the bloody British in a town in New Orleans. Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Lefroydis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Early in his administration, President Donald Trump compared himself to President Andrew Jackson. It's likely that he admires Old Hickory's brashness and populist flair. President Trump has even placed the portrait of President Jackson in his Oval Office. Why is Andrew Jackson, whose face dons America's $20 bill, so important to our nation's history? And why is he significant today? To answer these questions, we are joined by Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Fox News Channel's morning show, Fox & Friends, and the Brian Kilmeade Radio Show. He's the author of books including George Washington's Secret Six, and Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates. His most recent book, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, was recently released in paperback and is a New York Times bestseller. Brian, congratulations and welcome. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Brian, just to start off, you've written three books about American presidents. Uh, the, three, the three are themed around a single event. Uh, why did you pick these events and these presidents to write about? Well, I was for 20 years looked at the George Washington spies. I just was fascinated with it, almost a hobby to get away from sports and news. And I couldn't believe that his George Washington aspiring without which we don't win the, the Revolutionary War. And that was his belief. And as, as uh, the British, uh, the British uh, general said, the Washington did now fight us, he outspied us. And that just really intrigued me and that Nathan Hale uh, you know, Nathan Hale got hung. He was the original spy. And how bad a spy he was, even though he was a great guy and a school teacher. And then you see the spies who actually learned the craft. And then we're able to bring some new things to them because so much needs to be uncovered still. Who they were, how they got involved, what, what missions they completed, how they upended the British over the course of four and a half years, go to the CIA. And uh, they met and they talked about this whole thing with me. And they said, I'm absolutely not exaggerating. These guys were special. And we train our guys about what the Culper spy ring did. And when that book sold over a million copies, they wanted me to do another. And I thought, well, the war on terror is fascinating me. Uh, Bin Laden and the hunt for him was raging. And extremism would always refer back to, well, Jefferson was the first one to take them on. And then these Barbary pirates were these four North African nations uh, Tunis, Algeria, uh, Tripoli, which we now know as Libya, uh, Morocco, which is terrorizing our merchant ships, taking our crews captive and uh, ran to, uh, taking the ships and taking all the cargo. So it was Jefferson who had to take and they used the Koran as an excuse to do it. They said, if you're if you are not a believer, you are right really for the picking, unless, of course, you want to pay ransom. So Jefferson took that on. I thought that would be a great thing to bring up. It was apropos, important. He sent a message to the rest of the world that we are not going to be rolled over. We also built the, the foundation of a Navy that would help us in the War of 1812. And then when that book did well, I thought, Let's, what's next? And I said, well, next is the War of 1812. And I said, what's going to be interesting? And I thought, Battle of Baltimore, because that's when we first started reversing the trend of the war. We were getting destroyed. And the national anthem was big. Said, okay. And then they said, before you do that, study the Battle of New Orleans. So I took a month and studied the Battle of New Orleans. I said, this is what we got to do. They always told us you don't have to fight that war, that you uh, that, that we, the Treaty of Ghent was signed, the communication was slow, and therefore we annihilated the British, but the war was over. And then we found paperwork over the last seven years that revealed that the British planned on, they told their commander, Packingham, ignore any talk of treaties, 
fight your way to New Orleans and stay. And their goal was to stay. They didn't run into Andrew, a guy like Andrew Jackson, who was able to take his 1,200-man militia, make it into a 5,000-man militia, and then beat a 9,000-man army, the number one infantry in the world, in 45 minutes. For those who have a very introductory view of Andrew Jackson, can you give a brief background, um, give our audience a brief background on America's seventh president? Yeah, real simple. I mean, basically, his dad died before he was born. His mom had to raise three young kids on her own. Uh, when the war starts, the Revolutionary War starts, those kids volunteer, but his two brothers, Andy and Robert, are too young. So the older brother goes in, dies of heat stroke. Then the, uh, the Andrew and his brother start becoming couriers. And they were, they were scouts and couriers, and they, they got caught, and they get tracked back to their uncle's house. And when they go inside, the British find them and say, clean my boots, you're under arrest, clean my boots, because then they walk through the swamp to get to you. Jackson refused, his brother refused, and they hit him over the head. Jackson blocked the shot. His brother didn't. He would never fully recover. and would essentially be almost dead in prison. And by the time they got him out of prison, he died but as soon as he got home. When Andrew got out by his mom, which is him and his mom, his mom went to earn money. She dies. He's all alone at 15 years old. And he's raised by his town, his county, his country. And he always felt his own. He owed the country everything. And he had to pay back the British more than anything. So this was an opportunity. As 41 years old, he became a lawyer, a congressman, an attorney general, a judge, a senator, and then later a two-term president, but in between a militia general. And this guy known locally as his nails and as, uh, and as uh, ethical and moral as anyone, it really cut, really made his name as a militia general. Self-taught leadership. He drilled his guys, got them ready for battle. And when the war went south, they had to call on Andrew Jackson, even though he wanted to start right in 1812. He wouldn't actually start fighting until 1814. And all he did was run off win after win. Let's talk a little bit about the, the war. This book is centered on the War of 1812. You said you'd written about the um, the Revolutionary War and the battle um, against the Tripoli pirates during the Jefferson administration. What was the War of 1812, and why were the British causing so much trouble trouble after, 30 years after after the American Revolution? 20, yeah, 29 years later, the verdict, which they lost. They never really uh, adhered to the Treaty of Paris, which they signed. And they would radicalize these Indian tribes to harass and terrorize our settlers as they moved out west. Uh, they would constantly impress our sailors, our merchant sailors, and ones that are in the military because they needed people to fight the French. Uh, they would harass our merchant ships and interrupt our, our shipping lanes. They would not be ethical when it came to trade. And finally, uh, with the Warhawks in office, they voted uh, with 79 votes in the House and 19 in the Senate. They voted to go to war. But the northern states didn't want to go to war. They wanted no part of it. The embargoes and the tariffs really took a toll on them. There was a thought after the Hartford Convention, which they convened, that they were just going to dip out of the war and maybe just fracture and be their own country. They didn't like the way the South was leading them or Virginia was uh, leading them. So when the war starts, we declare war on them. We go up to Canada to, to fight what they thought was the nucleus, and we have nothing but a lack of success. They also are using Indian tribes, American Indian tribes, to harass our men. And Tecumseh was able to unify all those Indian tribes and really take us on, with the British, of course, fomenting, uh, fomenting the anger. We, could, we're, we rolled out some Revolutionary War generals that are way past their prime and had nothing but frustration. And while we sent what we had of an army up north, it left our old East Coast wide open. 
and the British were absolutely terrorizing it, culminating with the burning of Washington, D.C. And when Washington burned to the ground, our president all alone, looking over the burning capital, uh, you look grim for our country and our future. What do we get ourselves into? And it wasn't until Jackson got involved and started taking the fight to the British and started preventing some organization and got this militia thing out. The militias would fold like paper mache, but the regular army would fight. And we started using guerrilla war tactics, and we got a clue on how to do this by not shooting the off- by not shooting the men who fight, but shooting the officers. And as we started killing the officers, the British started falling apart. Time to get to New Orleans. We had wiped out their Indian allies. We got Choctaw Indians. We got Cherokee Indians on our side. We also got Cajuns and Pirates and Tennesseans and Kentuckians and put together this fighting force that was fighting for the future of the country. They bled red, white, and blue, and they also knew how to shoot. So by the time the British, who had one tactic that's marched straight ahead, got forward, they had built a berm, filled, it with the, filled the, uh, the ditch with water, and they sat there behind these berms and just took out, uh, took out the British like a video game. And they killed something like 484 of them. We got 30, 13 casualties, 39, uh, 13 deaths, 39 wounded. We had some like, uh, they had 500 dead, 1,200 wounded. They lost uh, 73 officers, two generals, and 12 colonels. And we did it in 45 minutes. It was one of the most impressive military showings uh, you will see anywhere. You, you talked about getting the Indians on our side and the British radicalization of the Indians as well um, against the Western um, American frontiers people. Um, could you touch upon a little bit about their ascendancy um, in American society and politics? We had the Federalists in the North and in the South. We had the you know, Anti-Federalists. But could you talk a little bit about the, the, the type of person that Andrew Jackson was and the type of people that really ascended into um, American politics as a result of this, of this war. He let everybody know that you didn't have to know somebody to get involved. Even though we think of America as brand new and unconnected and a chance for a fresh start, it really was a lot of Virginians, a lot of Philadelphia, you know, Philadelphia's residents, New York and Boston, and then everybody else. And it was a second class. These uh, citizens of the South felt like almost second class. And especially the people that were what we now look as Southeast, but back then the Midwest, they were not looked on favorably. In fact, looked down on. Jackson was the first to represent people. And in, in, in this war, um, what did victory mean for the United States? Well, technically, it was a draw. And we did suffer the humiliation of Washington burning. But that victory in New Orleans was so overwhelming that the rest of the world took notice because that same army just destroyed Napoleon, and all of a sudden they were destroyed by us uh, about a year later. So we would never, we would never be invaded again. And as a country, the rest of the world knew you could no longer you could be an enemy of ours, but you couldn't stop us. And that, and that's what was. That's key because they were trying to get rid of this uh, democracy. Not many people, not many people uh, thought it would last. And after that victory, everyone knew the war of eighteen, the war of eighteen twelve, not a great moment for us. There were so many others; it gets kind of trampled. But the Battle of New Orleans was the second biggest holiday in America up until the Civil War. It was a time for national celebration. 
and it would make Jackson the most famous person in the country. And uh, really, without that, he would mount three runs for the presidency, win the popular vote on every one of them, but uh, beat by John Quincy Adams You uh, the first time. You talk about the, um, in your subtitle, it says, it, it says basically the, the battle that shaped America's destiny. Um, why did this single battle shape our destiny? It allowed us to go out south. Listen, the British had every intention of stopping us from going past the Mississippi. So that's what I mean by shaped. Gave us a character to win on all costs, number two. Number three, it goes to show you we can win without the French. We can win without, uh, without British rival. It would also turn. It would also uh, turn the Brit, the Brits, from our number one enemy to our number one ally gradually. So it gives us a sense of national pride. You know, as I mentioned, the northern states were thinking about uh, just leaving, seceding. After that, they would know they were in for the long haul, and then we would begin to industrialize at a, at a manic pace. So uh, Jackson even said it. He said, my, my, we at one point will be the number one power in the world. My hope is we're not going to be an arrogant power. He saw all the potential. Andrew Jackson is somewhat of a controversial figure in our nation's history. Um, what do you feel is the biggest misnomer about our seventh president? And what do you hope readers get from um, this new book? What is the biggest misnomer? Right. Um, that he wasn't bright because he was from the South, the Carolinas. Uh, he had great instincts, uh, and he just, they, they act like he was in sometimes irrational and not worthy and uncouth. And it just wasn't the case. He knew how to act. He knew how to hold himself, but he just had an objective and didn't really care that much what people thought. So he would hold grudges. He would uh, battle with the press, but you would now find a, a more patriotic guy anywhere. I also believe, in my opinion, that for those who think that he would have fought for the South and would have been for the Civil War, don't really understand him. He was the Union, for better or for worse, he was all for the Union, and he was going to send troops into South Carolina if they continued on this lark of trying to secede. So, you know, people think he was how well he had slaves. That's true. Um, I'm sure he would have got to a point where he understand the, the folly and the sin, which that is. But he and Sam Houston were on the same page, whatever it takes for the union to stay strong. And just a, a final question, just kind of to sum this up. Um, what presidents admired Andrew Jackson, and why do you think um, President Trump um, decided to hang his portrait in the, in the Oval Office? A couple of things. Number one, that's what I put in the afterword of the paperback. I said what other presidents thought of him. So I included Reagan, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Truman, and Lincoln. Lincoln looked at what he did with South Carolina, keeping the union together, and used it as a template, also about forgiveness. Number two is Teddy Roosevelt said there was one military genius in the War of 1812. It was Andrew Jackson. FDR said the more I study Andrew Jackson, the more I love Andrew Jackson. And Harry Truman worshipped him to the point where he kept a mini figurine of Jackson on his desk and had a life-size statue made of Jackson and got his exact dimensions and was able to um, make that statue and be able to put clothes on him. He had to be, that's how much Jackson meant to him. And with, uh, tr with Trump, there's a lot of similarities. They both used their families. Number two, they were both outsiders given no shot to win. Number three, they were both head to head hated by their predecessors. 
They both were, uh, number four, they were not accepted by their peers. Uh, also, they would use uh, extreme power to reverse all those things. Jackson not only became powerful as president, he became the most powerful political figure in the country after he left office because he knew how to be a power broker and a kingmaker. Our guest today is author and Fox News anchor Brian Kilmeade. Uh, the book is Andrew Jackson and the Battle of New Orleans, newly released in paperback. Purchase it on Amazon or your favorite bookstore. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroides signing off.